But unlike being in the public sector, now you're at the mercy of being selected. And what I have found out is that it's not easy for women and people of color. They are underrepresented in both being selected as mediators and arbitrators. And I'm very, very active in trying to improve the statistics for the selection. And because if people like me don't give the opportunity to those who are underrepresented, it will never happen. And I've been very successful. Hello, I'm Yumika Anderson Howard, DNI Manager at Dwayne Morris. On this week's episode of Dwayne Morris DNI 360 with Joe West, our partner and Chief DNI Officer Joseph West will have a candid discussion on why representation matters. A conversation with the Honorable Shira Shetland. Hello, everyone. This is Joe West, and I am absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with uh, someone I consider a friend, but also uh, one of the people who I admire greatly, uh, both in the profession and in society at large, uh, the Honorable Shira Shinlin. Judge, how are you? Good. How are you today, Joe? Doing quite well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Judge Shinlin, if you don't know her, uh, is a distinguished former jurist. Uh, she was appointed to the uh, district court in the Southern District of New York uh, uh, by President Clinton. Uh, she served uh, a very distinguished tenure on the bench. We'll talk a little bit about some of the notable cases that she uh, presided over. Uh, she actually, uh, in, in the realm of things being circular, uh, rejoined the firm that she started her career with a few years later. I'll let her talk about how many years that was. Uh, she's also uh, has an extensive and notable career uh, in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern, Southern District. Uh, and she serves as the co-chair of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which uh, if, if I sound like I'm being uh, uh, immodest about this, I am. The, the Lawyers Committee is, I believe, uh, the preeminent organization focused on civil justice uh, in the country right now. Uh, Judge, talk a little bit, first of all, about your time on the bench, if you don't mind. Uh, what year were you appointed? Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting uh, because our timing is such that it's, this is the day after uh, Justice Breyer announced that he uh, would be retiring. Right. So, so, so the courts are certainly in the news. So, Joe, it's great to be with you today. You didn't mention, of course, that you're the co-chair of the board of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law, and we're the co-chairs together. So we do work together. It's a pleasure to be doing this podcast together. I came on the federal bench uh, in 1994, as Joe said, appointed by President Bill Clinton. Interestingly, that is the year uh, I think that Justice Breyer was appointed. It was also 1994. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that was a good year. If I do say so. I then spent, I spent the next 22 years on the bench. So uh, unlike uh, Justice Breyer, I stayed five more years. Uh, he stayed five more years than I did. But you know, I think he did a wonderful thing. I think that there is a right time to move on. And for me, the right time was five years ago. For him, the right time is clearly now when uh, President Biden will have an opportunity to do an historic thing 
which he is committed to doing, I am so excited by it. He is going to appoint a black woman, the first black woman in history to be on the Supreme Court. I gotta say, I thought about that a lot. In 1916, the first Jewish person was appointed to the court and I know what it meant to the community, not that I was alive in 1916, but when Louis Brandeis was appointed, it was a big thing for that community. And so while this is not the first black person, it's the first black woman who's going to be a justice of the United States Supreme Court. And I am emotional. I'm emotional right now telling you how excited I am about that. And we know he's gonna do it. And we know that person's gonna get confirmed because the timing is right. And hats off to Justice Breyer for doing the right thing. So back to me, <laughs> you asked me to talk about my career. No, but I'm, I'm glad you raised that point because okay. it, it raises a very important issue about representation. Yes. And why that's important uh, and how and why it's something that we should embrace. I mean, I've over the course of my career, there have been many times when I've been the only wow. in a room, as I'm sure has been the case with you. I saw a news report the other day that Ronald Reagan actually announced before appointing uh, you know, Justice O'Connor that, you know what, I'm going to appoint a woman. Uh, and in fact, he did. <laughs> and so some people have bristled at the notion that President Biden, when he was running, said, I'm going to appoint a black woman. Uh, but I, I really want us to talk a little bit about, and I'm glad you mentioned Justice Brandeis, uh, and the Jewish community, what that meant to people in the Jewish community, mm -hmm. and what an extraordinary uh, justice he ended up being. Tell us a little bit about why that type of focus on representation actually matters. You know, it's it's a hard question to answer. I didn't know you were going to give me such a hard one. I thought you were going to give me only softballs. But, I, it, it, but it's I, meaningful. I worked with you, you long enough to know that you can handle it, Your Honor. Okay. So <laughs> when, you, when you are a... Uh, underrepresented people, as best way I can put it, whether mm -hmm. it is it is the history of black people in this country or Hispanic people or Jewish people or Asian people, you name it. But when you have felt underrepresented, there is a great pride in feeling that you are recognized for the accomplishments that you that you give and have to give. And that's why I think it meant so much back in 1916 to be recognized as part of the American mainstream. And so that was a major appointment for my community. This yeah. will be an equally important uh, milestone for the black community. It was wonderful when, when uh, Justice Marshall was appointed, uh, mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall. It, it, the pride that people felt at that time in the civil rights community, I mean, certainly the black community, but I'd go further. I'd say the whole civil rights community, this man was an icon, the work he'd done leading up to his appointment. So, and I knew him, by the way, I was lucky. I had spent a couple of dinners with Justice Marshall and he would tell stories. Yeah, he would tell stories of his years in the South and the cases that he fought. Fabulous storyteller. He was just the best storyteller. I knew Connie Motley, he was an icon. So oh, these kind of people inspire us to do more than we thought we could do. Knowing somebody like Connie Motley, knowing Thurgood Marshall, I mean, I can't say I knew him as well as I knew Connie Motley because we were on the same court. But it's, they were inspirations to me. And so if you look at any of the things I wrote and you say, Judge, you got it. You really wrote something meaningful. It's because of people like that who were inspiring to me. Well said, Your Honor. And listen, the common denominator among each of the people you mentioned, Constance Baker Miley, Justice Marshall, Justice Brandeis, uh, yourself, is that 
in addition to being representative of certain communities, they all happen to be extraordinarily talented, gifted, and brilliant lawyers. That's right, and I don't want to leave out Justice Ruth Ginsburg because she was my professor in law school. So I also knew her. She was a mentor to me. She helped me uh, with my various appointments because I, I, I'd known her in law school. She'd been wonderful to me. So she was the first Jewish woman. So there we go. It's one after another of people who've made a difference. And that's a theme that we need to talk about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a connective tissue of excellence that runs throughout. Let's talk about some of the amazing cases that you happen to preside over. I, I can just name a few. Uh, the stop and frisk ruling is one. I know you uh, oversaw the Maurice Claret case. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, uh, some of the gaudy uh, <laughs> organized crime cases. So are there any that really jump out and stick out to you that you found? Well, you, you've named several, of course. I mean, the stop and frisk one, I think, is, a, is my most famous. We have this terrible phrase in the court called the tombstone case, and that's what they write on your tombstone. So I'm sure when my obit comes, they're going to say she ruled that stop and frisk as practiced in New York City at that time was unconstitutional. And I must say it was a sort of misunderstood opinion by some people and very well understood by others. The people who misunderstood thought that I said it couldn't be done. And I didn't say that. I said it had to be done constitutionally. Mm -hmm. we, do have, we do have a constitution in this country. Mind you, I think it's in great danger right now. I was listening to the news last night about book banning and it gave me the chills. I mean, book banning? We could talk about it, but let's go back to stop and frisk for a minute. So well, the police I don't want to interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Mouse, I, I read somewhere yes, that Mouse. Yes, yes, which is, yes. And please, since we since we alluded to the Jewish community, yes. can, can you just let people know about Mouse? That's a Pulitzer Prize winning. It's the first right. graphic novel, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not exactly, I wouldn't call it a graphic novel, but it's a, a sort of a comic book portrayal that is accessible to people to understand what happened during the Holocaust and how it arose and how, how this happened in Germany, which was a such a cultured country, so educated. How could this have happened? And it tries to explain the steps that led to the ultimate worst behavior in history. So it was an important book. And I, I heard somebody say on the news, I think, I think it was Chris Hayes from CNN. He said, from MSNBC, he'll kill me, from MSNBC. And he said, it inspired him when he was a young boy in Catholic school. Catholic, yeah. he, he went to Catholic school, but he remembered that book as something that inspired him and the rest of his career. So uh, I, I do want to return briefly. Sorry, right, please, sorry to interrupt. So what, no, that's fine. I, I brought up a book banning because it was shocking to me. What I said was, it had to be done constitutionally. So a police officer, if he has reasonable suspicion, can make a stop and can question a person. And if there's cause to continue, might be able to frisk that person. And that's fine. That's good policing. And I've been misunderstood. I'm all for good policing because of the safety of the community. And nobody needs more, more safety than underprivileged communities. We know that here in New York City, where I'm from, the people want policing, but they want fair and just policing. They don't want to be stopped when they go to the grocery store to buy milk. And we had endless testimony at my trial of teenage kids being sent out by their mom to buy ketchup and being stopped and frisked for no reason other than the color of their skin. And that's not right. So when I say that I've been inspired by others, I try to write a really important opinion 
I know it's now taught in law schools all over the country, which is very good, very uh, means a lot to me. The good news was given the timing, it never got to the circuit court. It never got appealed. So I was very lucky because the opinion stands as written and it can never be undone. Uh, had certain ju judges on our court got a hold of it, they would have tried to gut it. Certain other judges, of course, would have affirmed it up and down. But that's the way the courts are. They've become too politicized. Anyway, that was a very important case. One that you didn't mention that I'll only mention in two seconds was a case about solitary confinement, where I struck down the way solitary confinement uh, was practiced in New York uh, prisons and jails. It was a disaster. And I've I, I set out what had to be done to reform that. I'm very proud of that decision too. Uh, of, of all the funny names, it was called Peoples. Peoples, P-E-O-P-L-E-S was the plate of Peoples versus Fisher. But it was an important case because it reformed solitary confinement in New York. So those are two that come to mind. Maurice Claret is an inspiring story. For those who don't know, he was a very up and coming young black football player. And he wanted to break in uh, to the professional side with the NFL. And he was kept out because he hadn't met the two or three year requirement of college. And he, he, he said that that was an antitrust violation. I agreed. Unfortunately, that uh, was reversed by the circuit. He never broke through. In fact, he ended up on hard times, ended up in jail. But the good news that you may not know the end of the story is he's gotten out of jail. He's set up a foundation. He teaches young children and teenagers in sports. He's wonderful. He's written a book. If you don't know all this, mm -hmm. I like you to I'll talk to you afterwards, Joe. You should oh put it. You should, you should post it on your podcast. He's very inspiring. Oh, I would love that. I actually saw him play when he was a freshman in the in the Fiesta Bowl, wow. and I was heartbroken by the spiral that his life took. I'm really yes. glad to know that, yeah. that. And actually, your ruling was probably prescient. If you look at what's happening now with the NWA with the NCAA, exactly. And, you know, name, image, likeness, and how they've opened things up for the student athletes. Oh, I think they reached the same result I did. I just, I just was there too early. You were, you're ahead of your time, Judge. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about your uh, life post the bench. Uh, you talked about the fact that uh, Justice Breyer, uh, having announced yesterday he's going to retire. What was behind your decision to, to leave the bench, if you don't mind sharing? And, and tell us about what you're doing now and the work you're doing with your firm and as a neutral. Thank you. Uh, well, the decision to leave was a hard one, but I felt that the time had come that I wanted to be more active in the community. I wanted to be able to speak out. The one thing you can't do as a judge is be, is be heard except through your opinions, but you can't, you can't otherwise reach out to the community. So I decided I, I would leave and be active. And what I've done since I've left is written a whole lot of uh, opinion pieces that have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, other kinds of papers, where I get to really say what I think about the issues today. And there's a lot to say. There certainly were a lot to say during the four years under President Trump. Uh, voices needed to be heard to resist some of the things that were going on, not the least of which, of course, was voter suppression. We know all we know now the attacks on our democracy. So I know I have a voice that's been heard. I also, of course, am very inspired by my work with the Lawyers Committee uh, for Civil Rights Under Law. I feel good about being able to do that. I couldn't have done that as a judge. I'm also on other boards that I'm very proud of. Um, the uh, ACS, the American Constitution Society, and the Bronx Defenders, which is a very interesting organization in New York that does holistic defense uh, for, for the Bronx community, where it's not just about the, the petty crimes that people are 
charged with, but also it's housing, it's immigration, it's domestic relations. They try to look at the whole community and help everybody. So I'm very proud of my work with the Bronx Defenders too. So I've been do, able to do all those boards. So I, I had a real feeling that it was the right time in my life to be out there in the community. However, I also still uh, do legal work but not as a lawyer, only as a neutral. I have been trying to build a practice in mediation and arbitration and special master and expert witness and consultant. So I do all of that. But what I found is after a total of 27 years on the bench, because years before I was a district judge, I was a magistrate judge in the Eastern District of New York. But unlike being in the public sector, now you're at the mercy of being selected. And what mm -hmm. I have found out is that it's not easy for women and people of color. They are underrepresented in both being selective as mediators and arbitrators. And I'm very, very active in trying to improve the statistics for the selection of women and people of color, both. In fact, I'm speaking this afternoon uh, on a round table on that issue. Now, when I'm a wing in arbitration, I don't know if you know what that means, there are three people on a panel, the wings often pick the chair. And then in picking that chair, I never suggest anybody who's not a woman or person of color. That's it. I, I just won't suggest another white person. It doesn't make sense to me because if people like me don't give the opportunity to those who are underrepresented, it will never happen. And I've been very successful. Two chairs of my panels have been uh, African-American males. Uh, one chair has been an African-American female. So it won't happen unless people make an effort. And that I learned too when I hired law clerks. I said to myself, you know, it, they're, they're, the other people aren't getting this opportunity, other people being people of color and other minority groups. And I'm gonna make a commitment to myself. I'm just gonna find someone who is Hispanic, who is Asian, who is a black male, who is a black female. If you don't make that commitment to yourself, it doesn't happen. So that's, that's my pitch and speech to a lot of judges who are selecting law clerks, which is a ticket to a future. As you know, the names that are being considered for the US Supreme Court now all had clerkships. One of the names, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson clerked for uh, Justice Breyer. Another mm -hmm. name is being spoken about uh, someone on the, I think her name is Justice Kruger on the California Supreme Court clerk for Justice uh, Stevens. So it's important to get those opportunities. We know that. Well, and this also speaks to the need to be purposeful about yes. using one's influence in order to effectuate change. And you've certainly done that over the course of your career and kudos to you uh, for that. Um, in, in the time we have left, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, your personal family background. You were born in Detroit. No, uh, I was born in the District of Columbia. DC, but you lived in Detroit. I did. Okay, I apologize for that. No, you're, you got it close. <laughs> Instead of me freelancing here, tell, you tell me about your family background. I will. I'd be happy. To, I'd be happy to do that because it's always interesting to find out about people's parents. So my father was an immigrant. He came from Russia, and he worked his way up the system, so to speak, and he became the executive director of the Jewish Community Council of Metropolitan Detroit. Now, what that meant, though, is that he was the Jewish representative on all kinds of uh, uh, good nonprofit civil rights work. So he worked with the Council of Churches. He worked with the NAACP. He worked with the uh, National um, Democratic Party and other, and the UAW, Detroit being a union town. So that's the United Auto Workers. 
each of, each of those wanted a representative from that community. So I got to know all those communities when I was a kid. And I got to work in Washington for the Senator from Michigan, Senator Phil Hart, who was a wonderful Senator. And I also got to work for the Democratic National Committee man and committee woman from Michigan. So I kind of grew up with that bit of politics in my life, but also knowing some remarkable people who were involved in politics in Detroit. Uh, and I think that, again, framed a lot of my thinking and career thereafter. So he died when I was quite young, though, and uh, my mom had to carry on with three children, and we all worked pretty hard to make her life easier. And you turned out quite well. Before Thank we go, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. You mentioned that uh, we serve as co-chairs of the Lawyers Committee. The Lawyers Committee uh, established 1963 at the urging of President Kennedy uh, to get lawyers in sort of the corporate legal space more involved in civil rights activities. Uh, tell a little bit about the reason why you uh, joined the Lawyers Committee uh, and uh, help people understand how and why the work of the Lawyers Committee is so important, Judge. So I think of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law as the preeminent civil rights organization in this country. I have no doubt about that. And when I tell people that I'm the co-chair of the board, it just happened to me this morning. I was corresponding with a law professor in California, and he said, that's huge. That is the civil rights organization. 1963, as you said, and I wasn't, that was the summer I was in Washington working for Senator Hart. So I remember uh, Robert Kennedy testifying on the public accommodations bill. I remember President Kennedy, we were able to meet as a congressional intern. I met both, I mean, met for one second to shake hands, but met wow. them both. It was an inspiring time in Washington. It really was. And I think President Kennedy meant well when he said, if anybody can step up to help this battle, it's gonna be lawyers. And it's, it is very inspiring to see lawyers doing this on their own time. I mean, you, Joe, are very, very busy at, at, at your firm. I know that. You have all kinds of titles that I, that I can't recall, but managing partner this, managing partner that, I can't remember them all. And yet you make the time. You make the time because you know that lawyers have to give back and lawyers have to fight the battles. So you're putting your time in, which is hard to find. You don't have any time, but you're putting it in to be, to be the layperson on a board that's so important for an organization that's so important. This organization speaks out on issues. It litigates issues. It's fierce, actually, in litigating issues. One of its cases was just granted cert in the United States Supreme Court. The Harvard Affirmative Action case is going to the Supreme Court. Now, unfortunately, that's not really a good thing because we have a victory below. We may face a defeat with this six to three court, six to three conservative court, but it shows the kind of cases that the Lawyers Committee is fighting. We fight voter suppression cases all over the country. We do voting rights work to help people vote at every election. We do housing work. We do all, and you name it, if, it's, if, it's, if you could put it under the rubric of civil rights, we do it. And it means the world to me that I've had this opportunity to serve in that kind of, in that kind of an organization. I think that's a good place for us to end. Uh, Judge Shinlin, you've been more than generous with your time. I think anybody who's been listening understands why I said what I said at the beginning, which is that uh, I have just tremendous respect and admiration for you. Uh, and I'm proud to call you my friend and my colleague. So thank you for making time. Thank you.